Good morning. I am Sharon Pearson. I'm president of Salem City Club. Welcome to our first program of 2021. Happy New Year. I hope that you'll plan to join us for each of our two programs this month, uh, every month through May, uh, to fill out our 54th year. Uh, next program on the 22nd of January, we'll learn about how wildfires might affect our water supply and how the city of Salem is responding. On February 5th, our program will be in partnership with Salem Reads. Our speaker will be B.J. Anderson, Executive Director of the Willamette Humane Society. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. City Club would not be able to present programs without the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. KMUZ Radio, Blue Jean Fulbert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. Thank you to our supporting business sponsors, but also our business sponsors and all of our members for their continued support of our club um, and our mission to keep the community informed. And now, oh, and today we have a special program sponsor, which is uh, Collier Law. And I'd like to introduce Ryan Collier, who's going to say a few minutes to us. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Sharon. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, as you said, I'm Ryan Collier with uh, Collier Law. I'm one of four attorneys. Uh, we have offices both here in Salem and also in Lake Oswego. We practice exclusively in the area of wills, trust, probate, and Medicaid planning uh, for people. And it is our absolute privilege and pleasure to sponsor this event. Uh, I wanna just send a thank you to the uh, Salem City Club for really being an advocate for civil discourse. It seems now more than ever, we need these kind of conversations. And for many, many years, the Salem City Club has recognized that the judicial department and access to justice is so important. And uh, we have, we've thoroughly enjoyed and we support um, every time you're able to have a great program like this about access to justice, about our judicial system. And it's been our privilege to sponsor this program for many years. And I also wanted to do a reach out to uh, these justices who are speaking today, Chief Justice Walters, uh, Justice Nelson and Nakamoto, not only do they work tirelessly at the Oregon Supreme Court Judicial Department, they also are advocates and supporters of access to justice statewide. It's been my privilege to get to know them uh, with their work to help the Campaign for Equal Justice, which is an organization where lawyers, judges, and justices work together to build support for our many legal aid offices statewide. So thank you justices for not only your hard work at uh, the Supreme Court, but also just your leadership with access to justice issues. Thank you again, looking forward to this great program. Oh, thank you, Ryan. And thank you for your sponsorship, we appreciate it. Yeah, it's great, thank you. All right, and now here is uh, uh, Jan Margosian, who is our program lead and she will introduce today's program. Good morning, Jan. Good afternoon. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> very quickly. Of course. Uh, welcome to Salem City Club's first virtual program in its winter spring program series. Uh, courts often are the forgotten branch of government, but lately courts have been in the news for all sorts of reasons and has put them squarely back in the public eye. Uh, three justices from the Oregon Supreme Court Chief uh, Justice Martha Walters, Justice Lynn Nakamoto, and Justice Adrian Nelson, all pathbreakers in their own right, are our guest speakers this afternoon. Uh, they will discuss the challenges of operating courts and providing access to justice during a pandemic, uh, progress on the judicial branch strategic campaign, and the Oregon courts efforts uh, to promote equity diversity and inclusion in their work. All three speakers have distinguished backgrounds in many areas of law 
and their biographies, including their education, appeared earlier in our e-bullet, and so I won't repeat them uh, this afternoon. Uh, now, today's speakers have been given, uh, oh, approximately 25 minutes to speak to you. Uh, each of them will cover different subjects, and I'm going to introduce them all at once, and they'll appear on the screen, and they're going to go back and forth and introduce each other. And so uh, now I'd like to have uh, the justices join me on the screen. There we are. Thank you all so very much. Um, and now uh, I think we'll let uh, Chief Justice Walters uh, start us off. Thank you very much, Jan and Sharon, and thank you very much, Ryan, for your consistent support for the courts and for access to justice. Thank you to the City Club. You know, uh, particularly in these times, how important it is to have engaged citizens. And the fact that you have an interest in our courts and want to know what we're doing is very exciting to us. We are a collegial court. That means that on our Supreme Court, we have seven justices and we make our decisions together as a group of seven. So as a result of that collegiality, I thought it would, we all thought it would be a good idea to uh, all appear in front of you at the same time so that we can uh, do what we usually do in our conferences, go back and forth and, and have an exchange with you about the important work of our courts. So I'm just going to start and then I'll turn it over to some of the other um, justices to, to uh, talk, but they may interrupt me and ask me questions as we go along as well. Um, as you know, my name is Martha Walters and I became the Chief Justice in July of 2018. The Chief is elected by the other members of the court. And so the Chief uh, leads the Supreme Court, but the Chief also is the administrative head of all of the trial courts in our state. And there are, um, in every county has its trial courts. It's, they're divided into 36 counties, divided into 27 judicial districts. There's a presiding judge in each of those judicial districts. And altogether in our courts, we have about 200 judges and about 1,500 staff. So it's a huge operation. We have a professional staff in Salem that helps advise me um, but I make the final decisions on behalf of the branch of government. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to just make sure we really recognize today is the importance to all of us of having a branch of government where our disputes can be resolved, where people who have different views on what the facts are, what's happened, can bring those views to a court and have an impartial decision maker really listen and decide. And having this available, this impartial decision making, neutral place to go, really gives people trust and confidence in our government. And so it's been very important, I think, to our whole society that our courts be open and accessible to all during this, these very difficult uh, times that we've been facing. So we're very, I wanted to uh, just talk for a couple minutes about what that took during this time of COVID because um, we needed people to be safe. We didn't want people to come into our courts and be exposed to the virus. So, but they needed to have access to our courts. So we had this very difficult uh, uh, struggle between how do we make sure that our courts are still accessible to people, but how do we also keep them safe? And what it took was moving to remote proceedings. Generally, people come into our courthouses appear in person for all of their proceedings. And we're talking about a lot of proceedings, hundreds of thousands of cases being filed in a year. And was there a way that we could start to do those remotely? And you might hear what we did on the Supreme Court when uh, Justice Nakamoto will talk a little bit about how our Supreme Court operated, but think of the trial courts where people are being called in with uh, violations, they're being having to uh, enter their pleas, they're having to have their children's uh, custody decided. Could we, could we figure out a way to do these things remotely? 
and we actually have. We've been doing them on WebEx, which is video to a great extent. We've had over 16,000 WebEx proceedings uh, since the uh, COVID began. And um, then we've had other audio proceedings. We've still had the same number of cases filed. They're filed electronically. And we've been able to, um, I think, uh, from what I understand, we just haven't had a public outcry that things haven't worked. And we feel very, very proud of all of the people who work in our courts every day. Um, they've, some of them have been working from home, but they've been able to be remotely connected. We've had to record our proceedings and still be able to provide access to justice in these uh, difficult times. I wanted to tell you one little story that shows you, I think um, illustrates the importance of keeping our courts open. It came out of Douglas County where um, it was during the wildfires and there was a landlord who locked a tenant out. You know, you're supposed to go to court to have a proceeding if you think the tenant hasn't paid the rent you're supposed to go through a legal proceeding to evict that tenant. But this landlord went in and just locked the tenant's door so the tenant couldn't get in. And this was on a Friday. And uh, the wildfires were threatening this person needed to, they needed to be home. And they were able to get into the court through legal aid in Douglas County and there was a judge and staff available that Friday afternoon because they could get into court to uh, send the sheriff out and allow them access back into their home. But those are the kind of things where there can be domestic violence, there can be all sorts of reasons that somebody needs our courts immediately. And if we're not available to provide those services, it, it's, it's really uh, life, uh, is at stake. So we're very proud of our ability during these times to stay open and stay accessible for the public. Um, I want to just mention that in our effort to make our courts accessible, we've adopted what we call our strategic campaign. And that um, is something where we work with all of our stakeholders, all the people that in um, law enforcement, in legal aid, in child protective services to try to think what can our courts do better? And we created a strategic campaign, a two-year campaign that was supposed to start right when the pandemic hit. And we've amazingly been able to follow through on many of our initiatives. We had four commitments to the people of Oregon and 17 initiatives that we adopted to try to make sure that we're um, uh, representing and caring for the underserved, the vulnerable and marginalized and meeting their needs, that we're improving access to justice by eliminating barriers, that we're enhancing trust and confidence in our courts by listening and responding to needs, using technology as we can and creating a workplace and courthouse culture that's supportive, inclusive, and affirming. So you'll hear more from the other speakers about some of our efforts in that regard. Uh, but we're very proud that, that we have been able through immense efforts uh, by the everyday people who work in our courts to stay open and stay accessible and actually move our courts forward on some of these initiatives. So um, I'm glad to tell you more about that later, but maybe I'll turn it over to Justice Nakamoto to talk more specifically about our Supreme Court and what we've been up to. Thank you. Uh, and thank you Salem City Club for having us. Let me just tell you a little bit about my background before I, I talk more about what our court does. So I um, was appointed by Governor Brown and came on to the Supreme Court in January of 2016. So I've been on the court for five years. Before that, I was with the Oregon Court of Appeals also for five years. And before that, my professional background was in uh, legal services, uh, so poverty law, and um, business and employment litigation in Portland. Um, so what I wanted to, to talk to you uh, about was a little about what our court does and then what our court has been doing during the pandemic. Um, 
So you heard we have seven justices, unlike the Supreme Court of the United States, which has nine. Um, we have six-year terms. We are elected. Many of us initially are appointed to fill vacancies. So for example, uh, Justice Virginia Linder retired and I was appointed by uh, the governor to fill her spot, but then we must run for uh, election, unlike um, the appointees on the US Supreme Court who are appointed for life. Um, and what we do generally on the Oregon Supreme Court is um, announce legal principles. So we are sort of the, the last word on issues of Oregon law. And those could be issues about what does a statute mean? What does a constitutional provision mean? Um, or how does, how does this issue of common law work in Oregon? Sometimes we hear cases that involve federal issues. Um, so occasionally there will be an issue of federal constitutional law, for example. And those are the kinds of cases where if the United States Supreme Court wanted to hear the case that we decided they could, but otherwise the US Supreme Court um, can't get involved in, in our decisions on final issues of Oregon law. Um, Another so, so if our court decides that the Oregon Constitution has a particular meaning, can the U.S. Supreme Court change that? No, it cannot reach out and do anything about it. We're the final arbiters of, of what the Constitution of Oregon is all about. Um, another big area that, that the Oregon Supreme Court is responsible for is the regulation of the legal profession in the state. So this is about admission of lawyers, you know, the requirements and also disciplining lawyers and sometimes judges. Um, and in terms of the day-to-day, um, -day, uh, we are deciding which cases to hear for the most part. Most of our cases are discretionary in that parties are coming to us, filing a petition and arguing that their case from the Court of Appeals was wrongly decided and that it, it presents an important issue of law that the Oregon Supreme Court should weigh in on. Um, and there are roughly around 900 petitions like that filed every year. Um, and the court meets in a conference twice a month generally, and we decide which of those cases we should be hearing. Um, we also, um, besides those discretionary review cases, we have some direct appeals. So it goes from the lower court directly to our court and the two big areas I'm thinking about are direct appeals from tax court and direct appeals of a criminal conviction involving the death penalty. Now we had a, um, the Alcorn case that involved the authority of the governor to act. How did that one get to us? That comes to us on our, what we call our uh, original jurisdiction. So the court has authority to hear certain petitions for special writs. And the Elkhorn Baptist Church case was a case um, in which the petitioners sought a writ of mandamus, which is um, basically an order to a government official requiring that official to perform a duty. And so the, the Elkhorn Baptist Church petitioners argued that the governor had to do certain things. Um, we also have some special jurisdiction that the legislature gives us. So sometimes the legislature knows that there is a big important piece of legislation that might be challenged in court and that needs an immediate answer. So an example of that is um, 
changes to the public employee retirement um, system. And so the legislature can insert into the legislation a provision giving our court jurisdiction to hear a challenge to the legislation. And that's exactly what happened very recently. Um, so, so do we take on the kind of um, political decisions that we uh, hear about in the United States Supreme Court? I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them political. They're, we're definitely a law announcing court. And so is the United States Supreme Court, right? So they're interpreting a constitutional provision or determining whether a statute like the Voting Rights Act um, is constitutional. Um, so we do that as well, right? Maybe there's a challenge to a provision of a statute or let's say a criminal defendant thinks that the provision of the constitution in Oregon providing for uh, only reasonable searches and seizures was violated by the police. Um, we will hear that kind of case, but I wouldn't call it political. And, and, and are we trying to create policy when we're doing our opinions in announcing law? You know, it's, it's, it's not really policy, right? We are, we are typically construing what uh, an existing provision of law really means. So in the case of a statute, it's trying to determine what the legislature intended that law to cover or how they intended it to operate. And similarly, when we're interpreting a provision of the Oregon Constitution, we're trying to understand what the meaning of that provision is. And even though it was um, enacted in the 1800s, you know, how does it apply to circumstances today? Yeah, for instance, technology that might have not existed at all at that time, we have to take the words that were written before the framers even knew there would be such technology, but apply the principles um, to given that new technology. So it's, it's taking the principles from the constitution and applying them in new circumstances, but trying to be true to the words of the constitution or the statute that is in front of us. We can't insert things that aren't written there, or we can't just come up with our own idea about how things should work. We we're bound by the words of the statute or the constitution. Right. So how do we actually hear these cases? Um, usually we're hearing them um, by reading briefs that the parties file and then hearing oral argument by the parties. Now, typically we would all be on the bench and lawyers representing these parties would be arguing the issues. And this stained glass window would be over our heads. Right, in that beautiful Oregon Supreme Court building on State Street. Now, since March, right, we have been forced to hear oral arguments at least in part virtually through WebEx, through video conferencing. Sometimes we've done a hybrid model where some of the judges will be on the bench, but due to the uh, physical distancing requirements, only three judges would be in the courtroom with the lawyers arguing in person. And then the other four justices appearing on a big TV monitor uh, next to the bench. Um, and we also have done the everyone's appearing by video conference. Uh, that happened yesterday, for example. And then so, we have, if we're ask, asking questions of the lawyers, we have to be watching the other judges just like right here, right now, and sometimes speaking over each other when, uh, because it's difficult, but we do, we do our best. Right. But, you know, it's, it's worked. 
Um, we still have recorded oral arguments that the public can listen to, and we still live stream live those arguments, right? So all of you, if you have an interest in any of the arguments, could see them live. Mm -hmm. um, all in all, the work of the court has uh, gone on uninterrupted. Um, and we have continued to hold conferences, continue to publish opinions, continue to accept review of cases. So now I'd like to turn it over to Justice Nelson. Thank you, Justice Nakamoto, and thank you, Chief Justice, uh, for including us in this presentation to the courts of the, about the courts and as well to the Salem City Club for your interest in knowing what we do. Um, what I'm gonna talk about is our access to justice and our commitment to uh, uphold the trust and confidence of our courts. Um, the Oregon Judicial Department, which is actually the third branch of government, I always like to underscore that, um, has been grappling with the issues of, of justice for a number of years, over 20 years. In the 90s, there were task forces that were established to address racial and ethnic issues as well as gender issues. From there, there were recommendations that were made and then there were discussions around disability. And then in 2016, former Chief Justice Tom Balmer created the Oregon Supreme Court Council on Inclusion and Fairness. I have served as a member of that council since its inception. And I'm currently the chair, uh, only uh, succeeding Justice Nakamoto who stepped down in 2019 and I've been taking it over since then. <clears throat> we recognize that the core values of our legal system, fairness, equality, trust, impartiality and accountability can only be affirmed through the lens of diversity, equity and inclusion because we know that our courts have to be open to all. As a matter of fact, that's an underscored value of ours. So we have to not act as if people are one thing. We have to take them as they are as they come in. And the council that Justice Nakamoto formerly chaired and served on and I continue to serve on has a large number of people who are not in our legal system as judges. We only have a few judges on that council and that's by design because we realize that while we're one branch of government, we have to be collaborative and deal with system partners and other people who come in. Just so that you know, we have people that have been in the private sector on our court, people who are legislators who are on our court, trial court administrators who are staff that help us run our different courts, people who are in private uh, um, practice, as well as other elected, such as district attorneys, as well as people in philanthropic. So it ranges throughout the state, but the specific reason is because they are interested in access to justice. We even have someone from the governor's office that sits on our council. We advise the chief justice on matters of systemic, racial, ethnic, gender bias and other biases in our Oregon Judicial Department. For example, we are working on a policy on gender neutral bathrooms. People have been concerned about that issue and we're trying to work with the courthouses that are existing as well as the few that are new to address that issue. But more specifically, we recognized all that was happening in 2020. And in June, we worked with the Supreme Court and a committee that had formed called the Committee on uh, Addressing Justice in the Bi a Bias in the Justice System and endorsed an unconscious bias video for jurors as a tool to combat unconscious bias in jury trials and 
endorsed it so that it gave people information so that they could serve at their best when they answer the summons to in their civic duty for jury in, uh, duty. In addition, we continue to recommend training. Our judges have had more diversity, inclusion, and, and, and equity training than our staff, but we're now focusing on providing it to all and endorsing those committees. We also are supportive of the strategic campaign that Chief Justice Walters mentioned earlier. I am actually a judge sponsor of one of the initiatives, and then I support other initiatives. We're also very proud of developing an equity lens that's gonna be a framework for all of the work we do within our judicial branch and creating data because we know that data can inform us as we move forward. And we're working on developing an outreach plan and we have a toolkit that's been uh, created through the uh, initiative that I sponsor as a judge so that we can go out into the community such as we're doing today, but in a slightly different form to hear from you how we're doing, how we're not doing so well, to figure out how we can be more responsive. But I wanna leave three things with you as we get ready to transition to the Q&A because we really wanna answer your questions and hear what's on your mind, is that in June, we were aware of all that was happening in our country, particularly with the racial reckoning. And Chief Justice Walters worked with the other six of us to develop a statement on what was happening, as well as acknowledging that our system is part of the systemic racism that has happened in our country throughout the history of this country. And we recognized that it was having a tremendous impact on all of us and that we were experiencing this from a very personal level. So within our statement, we made commitments to try and improve our system. And I'm proud of that statement. I'm proud of us as a bench for acknowledging that and recognizing that it was important because we often don't speak out, but this was an important enough issue that we had to speak out because it was not a form of activism. It was a form of acknowledging where we are and we have a responsibility to try and ferret out injustice because we are about justice. From there, in July, we endorsed the unconscious bias juror video. Since that, the committee has worked and other committees within our bar have worked. And we now have a set of jury instructions that will assist in addressing bias that is unintentional and that we can address it in our jury trials. And the jury trials are coming back we're, as soon as we can all live through the vaccine and COVID. That's a good point because that's one of the things that our courts have amazingly been able to do. They've uh, rented out fairground space. You know, we've had to keep people socially distanced at least six feet apart. So it's taken a lot more room to have a jury trial. But when a criminal defendant has a right to a speedy trial, we have even during this time managed to have some jury trials and using the implicit bias video during this yes. time. So it's pretty great. Yes. And we continue to move forward and think about how to be collaborative. We've already talked about the collaboration with the bar, the committee on the unconscious uh, uh, jury video, the jury instructions. There are going to be some changes recommended through uh, the court the Council on Court Procedures on how to address uh, some tweaks, some changes, if you will, to our statutory language for, um, not, I'm sorry, not statutory, civil procedures so that it can be addressed in the civil and the criminal realm because we know that we have to be responsive in our entire legal system. But in September, Chief Justice Walters also established the Criminal Justice Advisory Council which is a 24 member group that advises her on a range of issues related from the coronavirus pandemic to racial justice reforms. And it involves a variety of system change people from public safety officials and organizations, members of the judiciary, judges, and representatives from state agencies and community groups, as well as associations. 
So this committee shows yet another way that Oregon Judicial Department is working to fulfill our mission to provide fair and impartial justice, protect people's rights, preserve community welfare, and inspire trust and confidence in everything that we do. We, we know that people may not have understand, understood the, to, the term rule of law, but after what we saw earlier this week, I'm so grateful we have the rule of law and that people adhere to the need for us to have a system of laws in place that we understand that democracy cannot exist without a rule of law and that we're now talking about it more and more. So we're hoping to show the leadership from the top about us trying to improve our legal system and address inequities. And we're doing that because again, we remember, we know that the courts belong to everyone. And we know that we have flaws and we understand that we need to do better, but we are the beacons for the rule of law, the lawyers and the justices. And we make a commitment that with hard work and commitment that the cumulative effect of our efforts will roll down like justice. Because as I end my remarks, I always like to end with some quotes as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, and I quote, let us realize that the arc of moral universe is long but it bends towards justice, end quote. Why? Because again, as Dr. Martin Luther King says, and he recognized that, quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So we're trying to live up to that and your public trust and your confidence to make sure that whomever walks into our courts from whatever county, whatever corner of our state, whatever level, trial or appellate level, understand that they're gonna get a full and fair hearing of their issues, that they're gonna be treated in, with respect and dignity, that they're going to be given the information that they can have. We cannot be lawyers for them, but what we will do is base our um, judgments, which means our decisions based on the facts and the evidence, and that people will feel like while they may win, they may not win, they, they were seen and heard and treated with respect. And with that, we're gonna open it up to questions and hopefully give you some good answers. And if we can't, we'll follow up with you. Thank you all very much. Uh, all of you stay on the screen with me. Um, I am blown away by the amount of uh, opinions uh, that you, you see uh, and, uh, and hear. And I also, um, I am so glad <laughs> that you are so different from the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> uh, and we're so happy to have you here today. Now, it is my privilege to be able to ask the first question. And uh, you can either all answer it or one of you answer it or tell me you're not going to answer it. Either way, you want to do that. Um, what I'd like to do is, uh, I hear this again and again, is I would like to have your personal opinions um, on Oregon, uh, the pros and cons of Oregon citizens voting for judges versus appointments by a panel of peers. So uh, I don't know who wants to start, uh, but I would really, I think this is what we'd like to know today. Well, I already went, went first. So Justice Nelson, you wanna go first this time? Yes, Chief Justice, I'll go first. <laughs> So, you know, it's a, that's a very good question, you know, because I can tell you that often I was asked, even when I was a trial judge, and just so that the audience knows, I was a trial judge for almost 12 years before I joined the Supreme Court in 2018, which adds to the diversity of our court, uh, not just what you see, but also of our experiences uh, and what we bring to the court. Uh, um, so... I think that it is 
interesting that we have nonpartisan elections. Uh, I find that, as I said, even when I was a trial judge, that most people are confused what that means because we're not tied to a political party. We cannot, we have to remain neutral. We don't take political opinion. We don't take political stances as we've discussed earlier. But it's also interesting, the different forms. Not only is, could it be a panel of peers, there could be a commission that has a variety of people that are non-lawyers as well. There could be a legislative committee that chooses um, the judges, both trial and appellate judges. And I don't think one form of, of appointing, electing judges works better than another. I think that it has to depend on that state and how they feel they're going to build trust and confidence in those who serve. So in, in Oregon, I think a lot of people haven't thought about, could it be done a different way? Because it's been done this way for so long. I know that, for example, in Missouri, because I'm active on national levels, they have a commission. But I also know that, for example, on the East Coast, there's a different form of commit commission and the terms also vary. So some judges uh, serve for six years, some serve for a different number, such as 10 years, and some serve for lifetime on the state level. Wow. It, it depends on the different state and how it's configured. So I think that it, it's an interesting conversation to have. I don't know where to land, but I, you know, have only lived through being appointed and then elected every six years because that six-year term applies to both the trial level as well as the appellate level. Anyone else want to try that? I just want to note that in Oregon, we haven't had what's happened in some states where, the, um, where there's been contested elections and um, uh, political issues have been brought in. We, our elections, when we have had contested elections, have been very much on the qualifications of the candidates. And so we haven't had to face the difficulties where there might be um, more personalities or more politics brought into it, which is one of the concerns of elections and how judges can be elected when we can't speak out. We're not, we're not taking uh, partisan positions, as Justice Nelson explained. And so all we can really talk about is our experience and our backgrounds. And it's a little hard uh, for citizens to really know how to judge those, those issues. So um, I think we've been lucky so far in keeping things at a high level when there are contested elections. Um, we, that may not always uh, be the case, but so far it has been. Justice Nakamoto, do you have, you want to add something to that or? Uh, not really. I think it's been well covered. Okay, very good. Well, thank you all three very much. And now I'm going to turn it over to our co-moderator, uh, Cindy Condon, who is going to uh, conduct the rest of the uh, Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Jan, and thank you, Justices, for your not your service to Oregon and the great insight into the Oregon Supreme Court you gave today. And now to our Q&A with the audience. We know many of our audience are experienced virtual meeting attendees by now and know how to queue up to ask questions of our speakers, but just a little review to start. All registered attendees logged in on a computer, pad, smart device, whatever, have some sort of raise hand feature on the screen. It should be, it's usually at the bottom. If you have a question to ask of one or more of the justices today, please click on the button to raise your hand. People will be called on as time permits. Your microphones will be activated only when called on, but you must click on your own microphone icon to be heard. And that's an important piece. You may also write a question using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. If you are joining us today by telephone, please press star nine to raise and lower your hand and star six to mute and unmute mute your phone. And now uh, for our first question, um, 
which I don't see any hands raised today. So I am going to ask the first question of the audience since I'm in the audience too. Um, and this is to all three of you um, individually. Um, I usually think, and I think most people usually think of justice as a noun. And uh, more recently, we're hearing people refer to it as a verb, or it needs to be considered a verb. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that, um, that uh, justice should be more active um, uh, than just as a noun. So Chief Justice Walters, you, you wanna take that question first? <laughs> sure, um, absolutely. That's the whole idea of our strategic campaign is that we, we uh, the words of our constitution were written down a long time ago. They are nothing unless they are brought to life. They have to be given life. So people have to raise concerns that they have, uh, you know, be able to bring things into courts. Courts need to be able to make decisions and enforce people's rights. If they're, they're, they, they aren't anything until they're brought to life. So it's very important that people um, uh, that we recognize that um, it's a, that it's important for people to um, uh, feel that they can act on their rights and that they have access to a court where the, where that can be given life. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. Say, well, go ahead, go ahead go Justice ahead. Nelson. Go ahead, Justice Nakamoto. No, go ahead, Justice Nakamoto. I was going to say along the lines of justice is active, um, that our court and all courts can only hear matters that are raised by the parties. And so, for example, our Supreme Court, when it gets a case, just doesn't decide, well, why don't we decide, you know, X, Y, and Z issues when the parties raised only A, B, and C issues. So it does depend on citizens on parties actively seeking justice themselves. But we can, as Justice Nelson mentioned, look at our system and propose changes to our system. We don't have to wait for people to propose those to us because we're part of it. And you might want to comment on that more. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say, Chief. Thank you for teeing that up. I think a part of what we each do individually, not just the three of us that are speaking to you today, but the other justices and a wide variety of judges throughout our state, when they're talking about justice, is see where there has been something that has exposed a flaw in our system and trying to address it. That's different from being activists. As Justice Nakamoto indicated, we're not creating issues or pushing agendas publicly or privately that we feel that we wanna do. We're trying to make this system work for everyone that walks in. I think part of it for me and what I have done prior to joining the branch and continuing was remaining visible. I recognize that I look differently than what a lot of people may think of as a judge for a variety of reasons, yet still and am, still and so I am a judge. And I adhere to the same standards and beliefs and had the same educational background and principles that my other colleagues have. I think that that makes a difference. I think that our governors in the past have given it some thought and that's why the demographics of our judiciary more reflects the communities we serve. And I think that that increases people's confidence in willing to lean in or trust us instead of just us saying trust us and then that makes it so. Being responsive is important to justice. And I think that that is one of the ways we are doing it in terms of, and, and not a noun, but being active. Thank you. And now we've got some uh, questions in the Q&A and this one from Ryan Collier. Justice Nakamoto, you were a legal aid lawyer. How is Oregon doing with funding legal aid services and access to justice now versus when you were serving? What more can we be doing? 
Well, I started as a lawyer um, back in the mid 80s. And I think my starting salary in New York City was something like $19,000. It's gotten a a little bit better, but, um, you know, it could be improved. I think I want to I want to give kudos to the Oregon State lawyers who strongly support legal services um, and who raise money every year that's a model nationally. Um, I wish there were more funds to fund legal services in Oregon because about 15% of low-income clients who would be eligible for services can't get a lawyer in Oregon. We only meet 15% that's, of the need. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. That's right. We're only meeting 15%. So and 85%. Legislature, yeah, yeah. And the legislature also does provide funding for legal aid, but um, it's never, it's not we enough. need more. Yeah, We do, we do. And just so that the audience knows, I also came from a public interest background. I wasn't a legal aid attorney, but I started my, my career as a lawyer, as a public defender. Uh, which represents people who can't afford their own counsel in criminal situations. And then I went into private practice briefly, but then I also worked for one of our largest universities, the largest university, Portland State. So that's another uh, way of seeing the paths of our various councils. I I wanna say that I've been looking at the Q&A and I saw that there is an interest in seeing the unconscious bias video uh, for jurors that was developed and I'll commit to sending that link to the city club so it can be sent out as well as anything else I may have mentioned during my presentation. Great, thank you. And this uh, question, and thank you all for answering that. And this question from Neil P, given the age of Oregon's constitution and our state's history, it seems likely that the constitution contains racist, sexist, and other discriminatory provisions. If a case involves one of those provisions, what do you do? Can and, I answer that? Oh, I'm sorry. Sure, and I just wanna say, we are going a little longer today because of our late, late start. And so hopefully that's okay with the justices. Maybe we should check with you first. No, it's fine. Okay, good. And Michael Becker, you're gonna be next up on the quick Q&A. So just so you know. So go ahead, Justice Nelson. So the Oregon Constitution did have such language, specifically around race. And in the early 2000s, late 1999, former state senators, Avel Gordley and Margaret Carter worked to get all of that language removed from the constitution. And so I'm not saying that there's not others, but there has been an effort at least through the legislature to remove that language in terms of race that included also gender. And that was a day of acknowledgement. And I bring that up because I was not so long living in Oregon and I was very curious about this. So I took off from work and drove down because I was a single parent, left my child in school and went to see this, which was historic. That doesn't mean that we won't come up with that, but as a a, a portion of the constitution to interpret, but as Justice Nakamoto explained, that's the process we're going to follow. I'm wondering if they're wondering, just trying to say because of our gender or what they perceive our sexual orientation is, or maybe our racial ethnic background, is that somehow going to factor in? And what I will say is judges and justices are coming from different paths and they do have life experiences, but we do not allow that because of the oath we took to somehow override what we have to do. That doesn't mean that a different configuration of the court may come out with a different perspective, but there's some consistency. That's why we have stare decisis, which means that we follow precedents of rules unless we find them to be wrong. So I think I'll stop speaking now and allow my other colleagues to give their opinions. Okay, anyone else? Justice Nakamoto, Chief Justice Walters. 
Nope. Okay, Michael Becker, um, you have the floor. Michael. Mike, can you unmute your, your um, I, microphone? I think I did. Okay, there I did. Go. Good. I've served for 12 years as a mediator in the Marion County Circuit Court. And part of what I would do in my mediation sessions is have to explain to the parties what the costs were of trying to go to trial and the filing fees and the trial fees. And as I've, over the years, I've noticed the fees have gone up and up. And I've begun to be very concerned and I wonder if the justices are concerned about the fees preventing reasonable access to justice. I can take that, Mr. Becker, because I, um, one of the things that the chief has to do is go before the legislature and it's the legislature that, um, besides those fees, that our entire budget is determined by the legislature. So we don't operate based on the fees that we charge. Those fees go into the general fund. Um, and so uh, um, we try to argue to have those fees kept at a reasonable level, but we also have provisions where we can uh, waive or defer fees so that they don't pose a difficulty. And we've worked really hard on that. We've got a whole, uh, e-court process by which people can ask for fees to be um, waived or deferred. And so we're very hopeful that in individual cases, they don't present a problem. Now there's all the costs of litigation that you're talking about if people are actually having to get a case ready for trial and pay for all the costs of discovery and uh, what it really takes to pay a lawyer or to pay for all the proceedings that are necessary to go to trial. And we work with lawyers to try to keep those costs down too, but they are a great concern to us. And there's a lot of different things that we're working on to try to keep those costs down because we realize that they do pro provide barriers to justice. Thank you for that. And um, this I think will be our last question. And since he started off the program, We'll let him finish it. This is from Ryan Collier, again, and related to the last question. He writes, as a practitioner, the Oregon Judicial Department's e-court system and remote proceedings have resulted in direct cost savings to my clients. What processes created for the courts on an emergency basis for COVID will continue as permanent changes? And Justice Walters, I think you're up for that. I think I can handle that one as well. Thank you very much, Ryan. Um, there's with the chief in Michigan said that uh, when COVID came, it wasn't the crisis that we wanted, but it was the crisis that we needed in terms of making change in our courts. And that's exactly right. It's made us think and move more quickly to systems that we were talking about uh, using technology and that made us have to snap to and do it much more quickly. And we will continue the, the um, positive benefits uh, where we can do things more efficiently remotely. We will continue to do that. It's going to be uh, right now, we're still working on what we have to do when we, when we have to keep people distant. But even when we don't have to keep people distant, there may be some efficiencies, some uh, cost savings, some more really ways of making things more effective. And we will keep hold of those good advances. Very good, thank you. And I think we are out of time for questions. So thank you very much for the audience questions, very good questions today, and certainly for the panel. And so um, back to Jan or Sharon, I think Sharon might be closing the program out today. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you. Jan? Cindy, Jan yes. is not here. Oh, uh, Sharon? Lost her contact. You're, you're going to oh, have to close I'm, it up. I'm not supposed to close, but I'll be happy to. I really, really appreciate uh, you being on today. I've learned so much, and I should know about the courts. Uh, thanks again. Uh, I hope that we'll be able to have you all on again as more things happen. 
uh, in the courts and the Supreme Court, which I'm sure it will. Uh, and thanks again. Uh, since Sharon is not able to be here, we just want to thank uh, all our members for joining us today and members of the public that have joined us. And um, we've already heard about our next program. So we'll see you all virtually uh, in our next program. Thank you so very much. Bye. Thank you. Cindy, can you close out, please?